Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials for making an instinct and a craftful life. You're very welcome, whether it's your first time listening or whether you've been following my journey for some time. For anybody who's new to the podcast, I'm Meg and I'm based in London in the UK. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet and that's with an underscore between each word and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M and that's with a hyphen between each word. I'll link these details as well as anything I mention in the podcasts in the show notes which you can find at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. In my podcast I talk about various strands of my making practice, often but not exclusively fibre related. Not just what I make, but why and how, and the environmental and ethical dilemmas underpinning some of those choices. At the moment, I'm knee-deep in pottery-related to-do lists, because I'm launching my online shop at the end of the week. But I thought I would pop on for a chat, because I, like many folk, have been missing a good old natter with my mates. Here in the UK, the lockdown measures due to coronavirus have begun to ease, but cafes, restaurants, libraries and museums, the kind of places where I tend to meet up with my chums, are still closed. And in any event, the use of public transport for unnecessary journeys is still actively discouraged, so I can't even catch up with London-based friends in the park. So instead, I thought I would have a virtual chat with my listeners. So how have you been keeping... How are you navigating our surreal and hyper-real times? In today's episode, I thought I would revisit one of my knitting projects. I'll also share some sewing and flag a new fabric range I'm quite excited about. And I'll finish up with a kitchen experiment, which is very much a product of one of the disruptions that we have seen, certainly in London, as a consequence of COVID-19. So I hope you've got some kind of making project to hand and maybe a drink of your choice and let's begin. I thought I would update you on my Tunnock cardigan designed by Kate Davies as it has certainly involved some know-yourself moments. Back in March I talked about how I was enjoying the mix of Shetland wool, the chevron lace pattern and colours inspired by the Trimetus fungi. Well, the cardigan is finally finished. Finally, because I hit a bit of a slump on it. I know many knitters get stuck on Sleeve Island. I consider sleeves a bit of a doddle, really, after the swathe of body stitches. Instead, I tend to get marooned on button bands. Picking up stitches is definitely not my favourite task, not least of all because of my eyesight. I mostly aim to limit my knitting to the evening when work and chores are done and picking up stitches in fading light is never easy. And it has definitely become harder thanks to the presbyopia of middle age. My blurred near vision and the resulting juggling of my regular glasses and the reading spectacles are definitely impacting my making life at the moment. Buttons were the other reason why I procrastinated about the button band. I have a modest button tin of leftovers, reclaims and vintage finds, but I didn't have enough of anything in my box to crack on with a button band. And with the world in lockdown, there was little chance of me finding more anytime soon. I generally shop for buttons by rummaging through the button trays on a couple of local second-hand market stalls. 
This approach works for me as it allows me to reuse stuff, is affordable and means I'm not bamboozled by choice. I know it's possible to find buttons online, both from haberdasheries and specialist indie button sellers, but my heart sinks at the thought of trawling through pages and pages of buttons and taking a view on how appropriate the colour is. I'm just not that good at window shopping, whether in person or on the internet. But then, a new online fabric retailer added buttons to the shop in a way that is utterly simple but totally effective, particularly for somebody like me who is exhausted at the prospect of endless choice. With this cloth launched earlier this year, its owner, Nicole, sells the kind of fabric she likes to sew, typically linen and linen wool blends, which just happen to be the kind of fabrics I enjoy using and wearing too. After the initial setup period, she added buttons and now also patterns to her online shop. But rather than stocking hundreds of buttons in every colour under the sun, she offers a limited range of simple buttons made from natural materials that go well with the fabrics she stocks. And to make choosing easier, she shows buttons on a couple of fabric swatches. This is ridiculously simple and in many ways an obvious idea, but it's not an approach I've seen before. For me, her limited range of buttons and the context in which she photographs them took the sensory overload out of choosing buttons. And just like that, my button band blockage was unlocked. It prompted me to pick up the Tanakh and finish the button bands in a matter of hours. Once I'd finished the Cardi and woven in the ends, which fortunately I'd mostly woven in during the actual knitting process, I excitedly tried it on and, well... I felt a bit disappointed. I suspect many of us knitters have been there. We knit something with pleasure, cast it off and then excitedly try it on, only to feel a bit underwhelmed. But it's not really something I hear podcasters talk about much, so I thought I would. My disappointment was linked to a number of things. To start with, this is the first really multicoloured garment I've ever knit. Admittedly, we're talking various shades of brown and copper, but still... And as I mostly wear plain clothes, I felt very odd and self-conscious in so many colours. I was aware that this slither of disappointment was just due to me being out of my comfort zone, and I hope it will fade. I'll wear the cardigan and work out over time how I feel about the all-over colour. If it doesn't grow on me, I can always rip the sleeves out and re-knit them in brown stocking stitch to tone down the overall look. Most of my disappointment was tied up with the sleeves in various ways. I'd been so caught up in the gorgeousness of the lace pattern that when I cast it on, I hadn't realised that the sleeves weren't set in. I could tell there was a dropped shoulder, but I hadn't clocked that the sleeves are basically straight tubes added onto the straight body. And because of the lace pattern, the top of the sleeves pulled the shoulder line pattern inwards in a way that bothered me. I've noticed this style of sleeves on a lot of garments in recent years, but because of the chevron lace pattern, this was not as obvious when looking at the product photos. I totally recognise that this sleeve style is a design choice, and having knit the Tanakh cardigan, I also realise its approach provides an easy way to retain the lace pattern. It avoids decreasing in pattern and having a few columns of stocking stitch both at the armholes and the sleeve cap. 
Personally, such decreasing and the slight disruption to the pattern don't bother me and, in my opinion, actually make for a more comfortable garment. But that's obviously my preference. There was a third reason why I was a tad disappointed. It wasn't just the location of the sleeve seam, which was a little uncomfortable for me. It was also the shape of the sleeves in general. I don't want to give away the details as it's a paid for pattern, but often sleeves are tapered so they are wider at the biceps and the wrist. In this case there was no such tapering. The sleeve is the same size from the sleeve cap to the wrist and then stitches are decreased before ribbing. This once again is a totally valid design choice, but I don't actually think it works particularly well for somebody who has heavier biceps. When I read through the instructions and realised this about the sleeves, my first instinct was to knit the upper arm with a larger needle size and then taper down the needle size to achieve a hint of tapering due to tension rather than stitch count. I dismissed the idea, but I'm now annoyed with myself that I didn't have the confidence to follow my instinct. Unfortunately, as I was very tight on one of the contrast colours, that's not a change I can go back and make now. I'm pleased to say that my sleeve-related disappointment was tempered a bit after giving the cardigan a long soak and a good block, which has helped a lot. It has softened the armhole seam somewhat, so its location on my upper bicep does not feel so uncomfortable. And it's also helped the sleeve cap to relax so that it doesn't distort the line from the shoulder to the sleeve so much. Also, a good block means the bicep dimension is now much closer to the swatch measurements that informed my choice of size. I should stress that my disappointment is not due to there being anything wrong with the pattern per se. Rather, as pleasing as a Tanakh cardigan is on paper, it may not have been the right pattern for somebody with my fibro quirks and style preferences. Or rather, I should have gone into knitting it with the confidence to take the pattern and the numbers as a starting point and modify it to turn it into the kind of cardigan I like to wear. And of course, knitting a garment that I'm not instantly in love with is not a waste. The process was a complete pleasure, and it has re reinforced that I need to allow myself to trust my instincts. Also, this project has further developed my analytical eye so that I can critically assess patterns before deciding whether I make them and how I make them. The only constructive criticism I would raise about the Tanakh pattern is that I really wish the designer and knitting designers in general, would provide a picture of the schematic in the Ravelry photos they post to help inform our decisions. If a schematic had been included, I would in all likelihood have still bought the pattern, but I would have known up front what changes I probably needed to make. Drawing on my experience with sewing, I studied the technical drawings at length before buying a sewing pattern, as this informs me how viable certain fit modifications are likely to be. I really wish it were common practice amongst knitting designers to include the schematic up front for the same reason. I would love to hear from you. Have you knit or crocheted garments that left you feeling slightly deflated at the end of it? And if so, have you worn in or modified such garments? I've been doing quite a lot of sewing of late, mostly around restocking my underwear drawer. This includes the endlessly frustrating and totally fascinating adventure that is bra making, as my regular supplier of bras has in its wisdom decided to discontinue my go-to bra design. 
The timing couldn't be worse, of course, because the elastic on my bras is perishing and lockdown means there's no scope to try on 37 other models in the hope of finding one that is comfortable. Hence, I decided to return to bra making. As my brain is slightly addled due to all of the hats I'm wearing for the online pottery shop, I will struggle to be coherent about the challenges, skills, self-recrimination and so on involved in bra making. I think I'll therefore postpone the actual bra making element to a next episode. For today though, I thought I would share the best advice I have for anybody thinking about trying to make their own bras, especially for anybody who struggles with body issues. Be kind to yourself and also make yourself a pair of knickers. Aside from mastering the specific skills involved in sewing a bra, achieving a good fit is a slow process. It won't necessarily involve sewing 37 twirls, but it will share some of the frustrations and possibly self-loathing involved in stripping off in a changing room to try on different shapes, models and sizes. By contrast, sewing your own undies involves few materials, little time and pretty accessible skills, and the result is unbelievably worth it. There are many patterns available online, and unlike other sewing patterns that involve sticking dozens and dozens of sheets together, knicker patterns usually involve no more than three or four pages. I use the free Noel underwear pattern by Madeleine Intimates. I did discover that the pattern doesn't actually include instructions though. I'm not sure if the instructions had been missed off in error or whether they were just on a blog post or maybe a video tutorial on uh, Madeline's YouTube channel. Either way, I couldn't find them. This was not a deal breaker as knickers are actually relatively simple to sew. The only tricky bits are the order of layering the front, the back and the gusset and how to attach the elastic. I ended up using an online tutorial by Olulu for the Ava panties, which got me there. The Norel undies are a high-waisted design, which is definitely higher than I would normally wear. Nevertheless, I chose this pattern because it was free, so a low-risk starting point, and importantly because I like the shaping in the leg and the backside, which for me are key determinants of whether a style would be comfortable or not. It was easy enough for me to lower the waistline by about 8.5 centimetres, or about 3.5 inches, which not only improved the fit for me, it also made them a lot more fabric efficient. Fabric-wise, I'm definitely team cotton when it comes to knickers. I used a light to mid-weight cotton jersey with about 5% lycra or spandex or elastane for an appropriate amount of cling. Just as with my socks, I can't stand saggy knickers. I used some plush pico-edged elastic rather than a fold-over elastic because this is what I happen to have to hand and because, despite my practical preference for cotton, I'm not completely immune to a hint of frivolity. Size-wise, it took me a couple of attempts to figure out my preferred sizing. I first went with the one that corresponded to my measurements. This produced a pair of undies that was a little too loose. There are probably a couple of reasons for this. Size measurements typically cover a range, and I suspect, like many people, when I'm on the threshold of the range, I err on the size of caution and opt for the larger size. The other reason for the bagginess may have been because I was using stretch cotton jersey rather than a synthetic jersey, which may have had a bit more support to it. A third reason why I registered the unders as too large is because of what I'm used to from my shop-bought knickers. 
When I compared the size of my M&S undies with the Noel ones, the latter looked vast, even though both garments were technically appropriate for my waist and hip measurements. One of my complaints over the years is that retailers skimp more and more on the materials to drive down costs. As a result, retailers seem to design underwear with a lot more negative ease, i.e. clinginess. The cynic in me reckons retailers do this not just to cut costs, but also so that knickers wear out faster due to the seams being under constant pressure. However, being a bit of a geek, I laid my assumptions aside and decided to do some research on the recommended amount of negative ease for underwear depending on the type of fabric. I'm obviously not the only person who's asked this question because I came across an article on the sewing directory that included a handy chart for the NERF or negative ease reduction factor for different kinds of underwear fabrics. And I learnt that for jersey with a percentage of lycra, I should probably use a 20 to 30% reduction factor. This means multiplying my measurement by 0.7 or 0.8, depending on the level of stretch in my fabric. For me, this broadly meant going down a size. The next issue to consider is how much, if any, tension or stretch to apply when attaching the elastic. Different pattern designers recommend different things here. Madeleine argues against stretching the lace. By contrast, Olulu recommends applying some tension. There's definitely a logic for each approach, and I think it depends on how much negative ease you opt for with the fabric. I can wear my initial larger version of the Noel undies because I applied some tension to the elastic. The first pair I made in the smaller size were, however, less successful, and this is because I applied an equal amount of tension. I ended up with elasticated legs that reminded me of the misery of gym slips at school. My third pair, where I went down one size but didn't put any tension on the elastic, seemed to hit the sweet spot. All of this may sound like a lot of effort and may leave you asking, is it worth the hassle? My answer is a resounding yes. Even allowing for the fact that my zigzag stitching was far from perfect, the difference between my me-made and my store-bought knickers is similar to the difference between a homemade coleslaw or tzatziki and a tub of bland supermarket equivalent. Properly fitting knickers made with enough substantial rather than paper-thin cotton jersey and with properly affixed elastic are a revelation. This is not intended to diminish the work of machinists sewing underwear for department stores and large brands across the globe. These sewers have neither the materials nor the time to invest in the garments because retailers are squeezing the margin at every stage of production. Rather, me-made knickers are another example of what a difference sufficient materials of reasonable quality and a little time can make to the most simple everyday objects. On the topic of sewing, I wanted to flag to sewers amongst you some rather super fabric. Last year, in episode 16, I talked about how Fabworks, a fabric company in Yorkshire, had developed woolen cloth that was spun and milled local to them in Huddersfield. The beautiful range of wools from herringbone tweeds and meltons was produced locally but made with imported fleece. Earlier this month, I learnt that Fabworks has gone a step further. 
It has developed a small, very limited range of cloth that is not only spun and woven in the UK, but also made from wool from sheep reared in the country. As if this wasn't enough to pique my interest, the company also decided not to dye the wool, avoiding unnecessary chemical usage and showcasing the beautiful, subtle, natural shades available from the many sheep breeds in this country. The result is six different cloths. Two herringbones, a nailhead weave, a hound's tooth, a check and a tartan, all in glorious shades of browns, fawns and greys. As Fabwork is mostly a company that sells overstock fabric, branching out into developing their own fabric is something they are understandably approaching with caution, not overstretching themselves while gauging the appetite for such a Yorkshire woollen cloth. As last year I had specifically asked whether their Heart of Huddersfield range was made from locally reared wool and had expressed an interest in them exploring that at some point if possible, needless to say I wanted to support the company. So I raided the piggy bank and invested in two metres of the brown herringbone, which has deliciously deep earthy tones of browns and dark greys. If independently produced natural shade woolen cloth is something that floats your boat, please do check out Fabworks. Due to the very limited quantities of each cloth, varying from 2 to 20 metres only, and no access to a web photographer due to COVID-19 restrictions, the company is currently marking this fabric range through Instagram, which is at Fabworks Mill Shop rather than on their website. The cloth is 150 centimetres or 59 inches wide. It's sold by the metre and is priced at £30 per metre or £85 for three metres, which strikes me as a fair price for a natural local cloth produced in such a small one. Weight-wise, the fabric would work for a mid-weight jacket or a skirt or dress with a bit of body. As I want to show the herringbone weave and complex colours of natural shades off, I plan to keep things very simple and make the Merchant and Mills trapeze dress. This is a tried and tested pattern for me and will pair beautifully with pretty much any of my natural shade hand knits. Fabric this fabulous really doesn't need any gimmicks. The COVID-19 lockdown has been a time of experimenting generally, including in the kitchen. After the initial toilet roll and pasta shortage in March, there's been the great flour shortage of 2020. Not so much because there is a shortage of flour, but rather because mills couldn't package enough flour in retail sized quantities for the demand. Mr M and I have been baking bread for years and consequently have been buying flour in bulk from an organic mill for some time now. We were therefore reasonably well cushioned against the flour shortage. When it came to yeast though, it was another story. In our area, there is still none to be had. Once again, thanks to Queen Maud, our well-cultivated sourdough starter, this was not a complete disaster. That said, we normally alternate our bakes between a sourdough and a yeasted malt house loaf. And although I've made the latter with a sourdough starter, I don't think it's a raging success. The sour taste really clashes with the nutty, malty flavour of a malt house loaf. I'm not sure to what extent my listeners around the world are familiar with the comforting, hearty flavour of malt house bread. I've lived in several countries in Europe and it's not something I've come across outside the British Isles. Most European countries have delicious bread cultures, 
but each tends to be different in terms of the grains and the baking style. For those not familiar with Malthouse bread, it is a wholemeal blend of wheat, rye and barley and includes malted wheat flakes to, for added crunch. The comforting, hearty, slightly nutty flavour is due to the malted wheat flakes and also the barley. And in my opinion, this flavour jars with the soundness of sourdough leaven. With yeast unavailable in local shops or online, I had to come up with another plan if I wanted to enjoy our hearty milk grain loaves during lockdown. Apart from the sheer frustration of it, the shortage of yeast also struck me as surreal. Yeast is everywhere, it's present in the air and it grows on the surface of fruit and vegetables. Furthermore, commercial yeast has only been available since the mid-19th century. That's less than 200 years. So I decided to dig into the history of bread making before the arrival of commercial yeast in an effort to decommoditize this ubiquitous microorganism. I know that capturing wild yeast in a sourdough starter has been around for millennia and that this was the predominant baking method in much of mainland Europe. But I also remember there being references by the Roman historian Pliny to the leavened bread of the Gauls and the Celts. So I was keen to learn more about the yeasting method traditionally used in those lands, i.e. the British Isles, Northern France and Belgium. Although the sourdough method was also known in these lands, there seems to have been a long tradition of using brewer's yeast or balm to leaven bread, which produced a lighter, less sour loaf. How to get my hands on balm? If the pubs had been open, I would probably have ordered half a pint of bitter, taken it home with me and fed it with sugar to grow more yeast. But of course, pubs have been closed for months now. So I hit a dead end in my search for a non-sour wild yeast. My next thought was to go back to basic biology and chemistry. Yeast lives on the surface of most plant-based foods, so how could I go about capturing and cultivating it in a setting where it wouldn't turn sour? A little more digging on the internet proved I wasn't the first person to ask this question. In fact, I found references to wild yeast cultivated from grapes, dates and raisins from around the world including by German, Arab and Japanese baking enthusiasts. As I had uncoated raisins and jam jars galore, I set to work. I popped a dozen or so raisins into a clean jam jar, then filled it about three quarters full with room temperature water and stirred in half a teaspoon of sugar. The principle is that yeast lives on the surface of the raisins and feeds off the sugar in the raisins to replicate itself. The teaspoon of sugar just helps it to get started. I put the lid on the jar and swirled it around gently. Then every day for about a week I swirled the liquid around and opened the jar briefly to let the gases that the yeast creates when digesting the sugars out and let a little air in. Unlike with sourdough, the process of cultivating a wild but non-sour yeast happens mostly in an airless environment. This stops the bacilli that produce a sour taste from growing. Over the week, the raisins started to rise, and by about day five to seven, there was a definite burp when I opened the jar. If you listen carefully, you can actually hear the yeast hissing as it tries to get through the seal in the lid. Once the liquid and jar had burped satisfactorily, I drained the liquid, including all yeasty residues, into a clean jar. You can keep the raisins, wash them off, and then pop them into other recipes. Then I stirred in a few tablespoons of flour. 
enough to absorb the fluid and produce a putty-like consistency. Think of the consistency of miso paste or a workable tiling grout. Then I left the jar with its lid on in a warmish place and watched as a putty-like paste rose up the walls of the jar. It became more and more aerated over about 8 to 12 hours as the yeast rapidly reproduced and it created a super airy, light, yeasty, doughish mixture. Cultivating your own yeast proved to be pretty straightforward. What was less obvious was how to use it, or rather in what proportions. I found very little information about this on the internet, so I just decided to go down the path of trial and error. So as not to waste too much flour in the event of failure, I started with half our normal portion of flour and decided I would test how effective the yeast was at producing a half-leavened flatbread. My first effort involved using about two to three tablespoons of this yeast mix with 250 grams or just over half a pound of flour. I used my normal ratios of water and salt and left it to prove for about two to three hours. This is double the amount of time I would give commercial baking yeast. The dough had almost doubled in size when I knocked it back and shaped it into a flattish mini loaf. What came out of the oven was astonishing. The mini loaf was definitely not a flatbread. It had puffed up and from the outside looked more like the proportions of a ciabatta or the round Turkish bread of my student days. Inside the bread was not as airy as a ciabatta and had a chewy crumb. And the crust was everything I like it to be, crisp, crunchy and very Moorish. A week later, with a new batch of raisin yeast, I made another half portion of Malthouse dough and decided this time to make rolls, giving the dough two proofs. The first one was just over two hours, the second one about an hour. This time I actually weighed the raisin yeast dough or paste to get a feel for the ratio of flour to yeast, which was about five to one. Once again, the rolls puffed up in size, had chewy crumb and a crunchy crust. With a sense that my first attempts weren't just flukes, I decided to risk a full loaf next. This time, just due to practicalities, I ended up letting the dough prove for about 12 hours overnight, much as I would a sourdough, knocked it back in the morning and then gave it another two hours. I baked the loaf in a fan oven at my regular temperature, which is 200 centigrade, so about 390 Fahrenheit or gas mark 7, I think. I'm not very good on gas marks. And I left it a little longer than I would a commercially yeasted loaf, about 30 to 35 minutes instead of 20. The result was a very tasty, chewy, crunchy malthouse loaf. And Mr M, who enthusiastically shares our bread baking efforts, pronounced he prefers a raisin yeast loaf. We are struggling to pinpoint why though. The bread we are baking with this raisin yeast is subtly different to our former loaves. The crumb is more chewy, which means we are probably experiencing the flavour of the malt grain more intensely. It also means the bread is more filling. The crust is definitely crisper, which we both enjoy. But the flavour is also different, and the only description I can come up with is it just tastes more interesting. That feels a bit of a pathetic, inarticulate explanation. But just as certain wines and beers or ciders and whiskies can be more interesting than others, so too is our bread made from raisin yeast. And maybe that's not so daft after all. 
The commercial yeast we'd previously been using is a single strain of yeast produced in a sterilised environment. Totally safe, totally reliable, but maybe due to the lack of variance in atmosphere, liquid and sugars, also just a bit dull. Supply chain disruptions will ease and no doubt I'll be able to get my hands on shop-bought yeast again, but I'm sure we'll continue to work with raisin yeast. Effort-wise, it's less effort than the minuscule effort involved in feeding our sourdough, so why drop a method that produces tasty bread? And I suspect we'll continue to experiment with other types of yeast as well. Since experimenting with raisin yeast and discussing it with my friends, I received a little package of brewer's yeast through the post from a friend who lives near an enterprising microbrewery that decided to sell brewer's yeast while shut. This yeast, based on hops and malted barley, produces well-risen loaves with a different flavour yet again. As a consequence, I'm now really looking forward to our local pub reopening. Not just for the social community experience, but because I'm now really eager to get my hands on some live bitter, so we can extend our yeast experiment and produce more daily bread that is in essence the same, but actually vastly different. Well, that's probably more than enough for one day. I hope to be back behind the microphone before too long with more musings from my making life, but I suspect I may be quite tied up with pottery-related making and logistics for a few weeks. If you want to follow that adventure, you can check out my pottery-specific Instagram feed, which is m.rkeramik, and that's K-E-R-A-M-I-K. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.